Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Spring has burst on the country this week, so has the spring statement. With a looming cost of living crisis and the uncertain impact of the war in Ukraine, the Chancellor took to the dispatch box. We're going to crunch the numbers and weigh up Rishi Sunak's big moment. Treasury wasn't the only department in the news this week. For the Foreign Office, the headlines were really grim reading. We'll look at an excruciating select committee hearing about last year's Kabul evacuation and dig a bit deeper into what may be some rather wider problems at the FCDO, problems which are going to need fixing as the Ukraine crisis unfolds. At the heart of government is always the question of who said what, to whom, when, where, and that is harder to pin down with the advent of WhatsApp, Westminster's favourite way of communicating. Is there a problem there? If so, can it be fixed? That's the subject of a new IFG paper, and we're going to take a look at that too. I'm joined today by top IFG duo. Associate Director Tim Durrant is here. Hi, Tim. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. And we're joined again by senior fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi, Jill. Great to have you. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by John Rental, chief political commentator at The Independent. Hi, John. Hello, Bronwyn. Great. Thank you for joining us. Right, well, let's begin with our first subject, the spring statement. Yesterday's big parliament set piece event. We're joined now just for this section by our deputy chief economist, Tom Pope, who heroically rose from his COVID sickbed yesterday to watch it all remotely. And he's been leading the IFG's response. Tom, um, how are you? Um, I've been better, Bronwyn, but not too bad. Thank you. Great. Well, an extra thanks for having you with us. So how do you think the Chancellor did? I think diplomatically, maybe how he did depends on what he was trying to achieve. Obviously, the big focus yesterday was on cost of living. And undoubtedly, Sunak's been dealt a difficult hand there. Um, not the first difficult hand he's been dealt as Chancellor, but living standards are set to fall really very sharply in the next year or so. Um, that high inflation caused by high energy prices exacerbated by the Ukraine conflict. And he has announced quite a lot of measures to try to deal with that, both back in February he announced that um, measures on council tax and energy bills. He announced more measures yesterday. And overall, the OBR thinks that's enough to offset about a third of the real hit to household incomes that would otherwise have come. But I think the big problem is that particularly the measures he announced yesterday, that fuel duty cut and the rise in the national insurance threshold, are the biggest beneficiaries are in the middle and the top of the income distribution. It does the least to help those right at the bottom. And they're the ones who are likely to feel the squeeze the worst, both because their budgets, are, more of their budgets are spent on those items that are increasing most quickly. They also have less savings to try and cushion the blow and benefits are set to increase less next year than wages are expected to. So I think if his goal yesterday was to protect those at the sharp ends from the impending cost of living crisis, I would say that he didn't do very well. But perhaps his choices would make a bit more sense if you think about the political context and particularly the challenge he has with his backbenchers and his determination that, to show that actually he really does like low taxes, even though everything he's done pretty much as Chancellor has been to raise taxes, at least until yesterday. And I think that's why he chose to focus on tax measures to support households. But because taxes are paid so much more by those towards the top of the income distribution, um, you're never going to help households at the bottom as much with tax, uh, with tax cuts as you could with benefit increases. And one more thing I'd like to say on tax is that we got very excited here at IFG yesterday when we saw that the Chancellor was going to announce a tax strategy. That's something that we've long called for in our IFG research. Um, 
Gio has been the vanguard of that as well. And But the document itself was something of a disappointment. It was very short. It had big text and it had lots of pictures and didn't have really the detail that we'd like to see in a document like that, laying out what the tax system is actually meant to achieve and therefore rationalising the Chancellor's measures within that. So I'd hope that there'd be more development on that as well by the autumn. Tom, thanks for that. You've taken us through a great range of things. John, I just want to bring you in on this because Tom has set out the the central question about this. Um, he suggested perhaps motivated by politics, by looking at the next election, wanting to be tax cutting. The Chancellor has ended up not doing uh, as much for those at the poorer end and who were worst hit by some of these. Why yes, do you I- think that is? It, it was, and do you think it's going to come back to bite him? Well, I mean, it's a very cynical calculation, I suspect, which is that um, for the Conservatives especially, um, not doing enough for people on benefits is not going to do them uh, too much harm uh, at the ballot box. I mean, he, Rishi Sunak was was focused entirely on uh, the, the cut in the cut in income tax while he was first first he was dealing with the with the national insurance hike which um tory mps wanted him to to cancel which he he did do for 70% of uh, of of uh, people who pay it um and then he was focusing on the cut in uh, income tax which which feels very very 1980s i must say i do remember when uh, the standard rate of income tax was 33% uh, and it's been going down ever since because it is politically uh, convenient for conservative governments in particular to to to, to reduce it but um, it does mean a rather brutal calculation that uh, people on welfare uh, can't uh, vote in sufficient numbers to stop the conservatives winning what did you make of the labor response from Rachel Reeves the shadow chancellor uh, I thought it was poor in the house um, yesterday um but i think in what she, in what res, in what respect well i rachel reeves the shadow chancellor just didn't respond to the two key measures which were the uh, uh the, the the raising of national insurance thresholds which deals with uh, one of labor's complaints which was that that was a tax rise the wrong tax rise at the at the wrong time um and she didn't address the the, the forward looking cut in income tax either uh, but she got up to speed pretty quickly uh, immediately afterwards and spotted the uh, the real uh, the real terms uh, cut to uh, people on benefits and state pensions uh, and made that the centerpiece of her attack uh, afterwards which i think is completely justified yes and it's always um quite a, a feat uh, athletic feat to respond quickly to these things. Jill, you used to work in the Treasury. What do you make of this account as a kind of ideological battle, um, sometimes described as between number 10 and number 11, sometimes described as being within the Chancellor himself? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, there are sort of pieces going around today that this rather uncomfortable strategy is the outcome of sort of number 10, number 11 tensions playing out as sort of big spending prime minister, uh, a more restrained chancellor, but a chancellor also wants to underline his tax cutting credentials. But I do think that people in the Treasury will be very concerned. I don't think I've ever seen such a uniformly terrible reception 
to a package uh, when you've even managed to lose people who are pretty sort of you know reliable cheerleaders for the government like the daily express condemning what you've done as hope hopelessly inadequate i do think that people in the treasury will be worrying about whether they actually got this right because i thought the chancellor really did his reputation absolutely no good at all yesterday because he looked as though he was effectively playing party politics uh, in the face of a massive cost of living crisis that a lot of people are genuinely extremely worried about um, by dint of sort of majoring on this pre-election bribe to come. And, you know, it was quite uncomfortable when he was asked how on earth he could be promising it, given how uncertain the outlook is. And while it's possible to say, well, Conservative voters aren't on benefits, uh, it's quite interesting. If you look at the sort of, you know, thing Rishi Sunak made his reputation on, which was furlough, that was a very generous scheme to put a sort of safety net under the economy. That's, you know, he became the whatever it takes chancellor. Now he looks like the rather tin-eared, not nearly enough chancellor. And I think people in the Treasury will be wondering whether how many times people are going to come back for more to try and respond to some of the things that he didn't address in the statement yesterday. He's already made it clear that he expects to do more in the autumn, but the timing of the autumn budget may mean that he can't wait till then, that he has to come back a bit sooner. Really interesting point, which I'll come on to in a a second. You uh, write a lot about net zero for us. What did you make of the net zero proposals in this and, and the assorted things on fuel and energy? Well, there's a bit more about net zero than there was in the uh, in the autumn budget, but that was a pretty low not, bar because it wasn't not very zero, much there. Yes. Um, so he did a welcome move um, on, you know, an anomaly about VAT on solar panels and heat pumps. But frankly, if you are someone who's wondering whether they can keep the prepayment meter topped up, you're not about to go and say, my cost of my solar panels now gone down by a few percent. I'm going to install a bunch of solar panels now. So it was a sensible move. It was a long overdue move, but I don't think it adds up to much. Of course, the other move he made was this cut in fuel duty, um, which the Treasury is assuming gets restored next year. We'll have to wait to see on that, uh, I think the trouble with that is while it's a slightly perverse move, given the emphasis on net zero, uh, because in the long run, we want to signal to people to move to electric cars. It's so swamped by the change in underlying prices. I think people were saying it effectively takes prices back to where they were the week before. So it, and it's, what's really interesting about it, I think, is how much smaller it is than comparative moves being made in other countries, whether it's sort of, you know, the 20 euro cents coming off in Ireland, the Germans have just put through a similar, similar move. So it looked so something that was signaling there was an issue, but then not doing very much about it. Mm, thanks very much for that. Tom, uh, Jill was just mentioning whether or not Sunak might have to come back and do some more. He's often uh, had to make emergency statements and, and, and support statements in his time as Chancellor. Do you think that this cost of living crisis and the rise in energy bills means that he's going to have to do that again? Yes, uh, as Jill said, um, Sunak's gamble seems to be that you know he, he can do something now, but then wait until the autumn. And if things still look bad then, then he can do some more. I think that is quite a gamble because the cost of living crisis isn't going to wait until the autumn. People already feel 
understandably, that they're already in the midst of a cost of living crisis and energy bills haven't even had their 50% hike that is coming in a couple of weeks. I think it is going to be really difficult and we, we shouldn't underestimate just how difficult things are going to be for households in the next six months or so. Um, whether that actually means that the Chancellor feels that he needs to do another statement, um, at least initially or early on in the next few months, I think the Chancellor would be very resistant to that. And I think the Treasury would be as well. Um, but I think there will be a lot of pressure unless things look a lot better um, soon for the Chancellor to do more say, towards the end of the summer when perhaps there's another hike in the uh, energy price cap. So we know that another increase in bills is coming. Um, there could well be pressure then. Um, and if he doesn't do anything before then, then I'm sure there'll be big expectations come his awesome budget that he'll be doing more on the cost of living. But also the thing that he didn't talk about yesterday was public services. Um, the plans yesterday effectively assume very big cuts in real terms, public sector pay, smaller increases in public sector pay in the private sector. And I think he's going to come under pressure on that one as well. Mm. A lot of pressures there. John, where does this go by the next election? Well, that's <laughs> that's it's the not big that question. far off. <laughs> well, he was setting the terms. Uh, the Chancellor was setting the terms for that uh, for that election, uh, daring uh, Labour to oppose the uh, income tax cut, um, which, of course, I'm, I'm sure Labour won't do. Uh, I mean, it, they're not going to walk into that uh, trap because it's rather too well advertised. But it does set the terms for the next election, which is going to be. Um, an extraordinary uh, turnaround, actually, for the for the Chancellor to present himself and the Tories as the as the party of tax cutting, despite everything that's happened in this Parliament. Um, and obviously, the attack on Labour will be that they would uh, they would not cut taxes uh, as as much as the the Tories would. Uh, and I think that's going to be the uh, that's going to be the campaign. The question is, what happens between uh, now and then, whether that uh, upsets that calculation, whether the cost of living crisis is so great that uh, that Rishi Sunak comes under pressure to do to do more. I mean, as uh, as, as Tom said in in autumn, I mean it's already too late um, for a lot of people, I suspect. Mm. But uh, he may well take further action then. Well, even the next six months, as we've been discussing, is a very long time. Um, thanks for that, and Tom, thank you for being with us. Get well soon. Thanks very much. Okay, take care. Let's go to our next subject, and we'll switch our attention to the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, much in the spotlight recently due to the UK's response to the Ukraine crisis, but also for last year's chaotic evacuation from Kabul. And that's where I want to begin, because this week we saw a bruising select committee appearance for two of the FCDO's top civil servants. Tim, who were they and what was the headline? So uh, we had Philip Barton. So Philip Barton, who's the permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, and then Nigel Casey, who is the director uh, of Afghanistan-Pakistan issues in the Foreign Office. They were there because um, a, a whistleblower, a, a, a mid-ranking civil servant in the Foreign Office, had sent some evidence to the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, laying out her criticisms of the evacuation of uh, Afghanistan last summer and particularly focusing around the decision-making on 
um, Nowzad, the animal charity, and how the decision was made to prioritise their staff for evacuation. One their, of, their staff and the animals. Uh, indeed, yeah. And one of the big questions was about whether or not that decision had ultimately been signed off by the Prime Minister, but by the end of the committee, we were still none the wiser. None the wiser, or was there a strong accusation that it was the Prime Minister? There is absolutely an accusation that it was the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister has denied it himself several times, um, and the the officials were unable to say where the ultimate decision came from. Let's hear a clip. Well, I mean, the, the one aspect of it which none of us could remember, Philip, me, Laurie, uh, in December, was, was who specifically had authorised the call forward of, of Nauzad's staff for evacuation. And as it turns out, there was a very good reason why none of us could remember that. Uh, and that is because we had not been told at the time and we haven't been since. An answer that reveals nothing and rather a lot. And you wrote a great piece for us this week, which argued that for all this embarrassment about the, the, the animals, the problems are much deeper. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the hearing and the whistleblower's evidence revealed much deeper, bigger problems um, about how the Foreign Office responds to crises, which is obviously, you know, a core part of its work, uh, about the fact that morale is clearly really low. Um, Josie Stewart, the whistleblower, wrote that she didn't think that people would act, senior people would act on her evidence or on other criticisms raised inside the department. Uh, and she didn't have confidence in in the department's management. Um, and then also just really practical things like, um Obviously, the FCDO is a, is a relatively new department. It was created um, from the merger of the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development in 2020. And even now, almost two years on, um, IT systems between the f- two former departments are still not interoperable. So there's a lot of problems, I think, that are we're sort of seeing surface through these, these crises. And we've heard a great wail of lack of money come up from both parts of the whole, if you like. The Foreign Office hasn't had much money for years. That's been a big squeeze there. Perhaps had hopes that it would have more with the merger with, with DFID, um, which had much more um, money available to to distribute. But then there was a big cut in the aid budget mm. at just about the same time as this merger. Yeah. So everyone sounds unhappy all round. And in fact, um, there's one key figure is, 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 uh, that brings us home. Between 2017 2022, it cut uh, the Foreign Office cut its Russian speakers from 83 to fewer than 60, and obviously that's um, something we need quite a lot of now. What do you make of this financial pressure? Well, I think on that specific issue, what the Foreign Office says is because um, they have staff who speak local languages in. Central Asian and, and Eastern European countries, so they don't need as many Russian speakers. But yeah, absolutely, the, the budget pressures are huge, and um, that is playing through clearly into the the kind of staff morale. Um, there's a lot of criticism of um, of sort of you know selling off uh, jewels in the crown of the Foreign Office's estate around the world, um, and and I think the the, the cut to, from 0.7 to 0.5 on the aid budget is is hugely affected everyone in the department and also all of the um, a lot of the organisations that the, the the department funds, so it's it's really it's clearly the department as a whole is not not in a good place. And I think the spring statement as well was it was a, a opportunity for things to change there. Um, as I understand it, Sunak announced some money for Ukraine, but that's going to be taken from the existing aid budget. So that means cuts again to existing programmes. Um, and then there's a question as well about what Liz Truss's vision for um, the international development side of the department is. She's overseeing the, the establishment of a new strategy on that front. And there's been lots of reports that she wants big changes uh, from from previous issues onto her, her sets of priorities. So basically, it's a department that's gone through a huge amount of flux over two years. It's obviously been dealing with massive crises like the rest of government, but also kind of leading the charge on Afghanistan and Ukraine for the UK um, and is struggling with this merger. 
Thanks for that. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about this recently, including about the pain of that uh, merger. Jill, you're a Whitehall veteran. You know a thing or two about mergers. Are these inevitable teething problems? I mean, mergers are never easy. That's true. And ministers sort of think that they're sort of basically an instant solution that you just take, you know, two sets of acronyms, bang them together, and you've got another set of acronyms. But we always know. I mean, the sort of they, thing they have you, managed that. They have managed that bit. They have managed the acronyms, but everything else is much harder. And I think um, Tim is right. You get these things. You know, the typical one is the lack of integration of IT systems. But I think. You know, one of the things the staff were told when the merger happened was that there was no threat to the size of the aid budget. So I think you know, morale took a huge hit, particularly on the development side, who was already feeling undervalued. I think the Foreign Office people were probably quite happy to be taking over DFID, solve some of their budget issues potentially, but the development people were already feeling under attack by losing what they really valued their sort of independent status as a very well-regarded international development department uh, being taken over by the Foreign Office. Then they had to put through this cut, which has been implemented quite brutally because of the commitments around multilateral aid. So the things that we're committed to give to international organisations. A lot of the bilateral aid programmes had to be really savaged and lots of programmes had to be terminated to meet the numbers, you know, well ahead of whenever they were supposed to deliver any results. It's, yeah, quite poor poor value yeah. and very soul-destroying that, that Despite this government's, you know, very British orientated um championship uh, a lot of the smaller british ngos like halo trust or something they're the ones who've had their budgets yeah, suddenly squeezed squee- squee- and the, the big things like let's give some money to the world bank or whatever that that has yeah had you have to result. cut wherever you can and it's those sorts of smaller contracts which you know more flexible contracts things like girls education those sorts of things that you're cutting you're having to dismiss you know staff terminate local contracts and things like that so i think that's been very difficult there's also just been a reorganisation at the top of the FCO. Uh, one of the sort of you know, long-standing DFID lifers has you know, decided he doesn't want to be part of the new structure and has left, so he's not there. And what you have is a permanent secretary who's a foreign office person, Philip Barton, Tim was mentioning, and then his number two, now designated as number two, is Tim Barrow. We know Tim Barrow, former UK permanent uh, representative at UCRIP, did the Brexit negotiations, but he's also a foreign office person. And I think if you were signalling that this is much more of a joint enterprise, you'd have said, actually, our number one may be foreign office heritage, but our number two is going to be somebody who really understands what a good development department looks like. So there's lots of signals going around that, uh, that you know, the development side is being really, in a sense, um, downgraded. And I think the staff feel that quite badly. Mm. Mm. There was one key departure at uh, Director General level this this week, um, adding to the picture of demoralisation on the development side. John, what do you make of the Foreign Office's standing now? We've had years of talk about how it was getting diminished. Yes. I mean, uh, I, th- I think it, it does ask some fundamental questions about why Boris Johnson uh, did put the two departments uh, together. Uh, and it, it is almost linked with uh, the question about the spring statement, about whether uh, the Conservatives think that, I mean, in the spring statement, they think that um, the, the welfare budget is something they can they can happily ignore because there's no electoral cost. The question is, can they ignore international development because there's no electoral cost? I mean, David Cameron thought that um, that international development was a vote winner for the Conservatives because it helped present them as a, a one-nation 
liberal centrist party and uh, obviously that calculation has has been changed in a rather sort of cynical and uh, uh, you know, uh, fashion by uh, by Boris Johnson and and Rishi Sunak, um, who is responsible for the temporary cut. Well, you're say, you're, you're saying you're three. saying uh, cynical, but there's a lot of pressure on budgets, as we were discussing the, at, at the top of this podcast. Um, and you know, the government might say, "Look, British people would prefer us to spend that money at home, not abroad." Oh yes, absolutely, and that was part of the rationale behind the. They, they cut from 0.7 to 0.5, but um, interestingly, the pressure to put to put that back up uh, is so strong that, uh, that that's that's now going to going to happen. I mean, but none of that means that you had to merge the two departments. I mean, that just looks like empire building on on the part mm. of the foreign office. Um, can, and can you, you imagine know, it being re- reversed? I mean, there's been some well, pointed. It, it, um, step, you know, there's no minister for development um, w- within this. Um, there's, um, uh, you know, they've, they've been done very much as a merger, so it makes it hard to break out the development department again. And quite a lot of people have 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 left it. Um, who've spent their careers in development as opposed to diplomacy. Can you can you see it being reversed? Oh yeah, I mean, well, the history of it is uh, extraordinary and 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 very partisan. I mean, you know, the Labour Labour governments have had a separate department, and Conservative governments have uh, have put them back in the Foreign Office again, uh, and that's been the pattern, you know, back to the sixties, um, because I think it was the Wilson uh, government that first set up uh, the, the mm. internet. Well, it wasn't mm. called International Development then. Um, so yeah, if there's another Labour government, then yes, I can see I can see the two departments being separated out again. Okay, well, we'll hold that thought. Thanks very much indeed. Let's now switch again to our final subject, and that is talking, sort of, how ministers, special advisors, officials talk to each other, emails, letters, formal meetings, phone calls, and of course, snatched conversations in corridors. They're all ways of getting across what you want in Westminster. But recent years have seen WhatsApp added to the mix. And we have a new paper out this week, which sets out that this isn't always a good thing. Tim, you wrote this paper. What's different about WhatsApp? Yeah, so one of the points we make is, in some ways, WhatsApp is just a kind of digital version of those classic conversations. So people text or rather than call or speak to each other in person. And that totally makes sense. But we've seen, we know, you know, the government, across government, WhatsApp is used. So we know that the PM uses it. He texts the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He does his red box work by WhatsApp, according to a story out this week. We know lots of backbench MPs use it for plotting their next rebellion. And we know officials use it as well. We we put in FOI requests to, to every department and the ones that answered told us, most of them told us that hundreds of officials in those departments use WhatsApp. So that's fine. It's a useful tool. The risk, we think, is when it's being used for detailed discussions and decision making. So like with the Prime Minister going through, getting advice about his red box via WhatsApp and making decisions on the back of that. You can't you can't use WhatsApp for the same level of detail as you can, uh, you know, a proper written submission or a meeting to discuss an issue. Um, and it just risks either decisions being made not on the full evidence or being made and then not communicated properly because the person in the group chat thinks, okay, it's all sorted. And actually, the um, the rest of government who needs to implement that decision doesn't know about it. Uh, we also think there's a problem in that um, it's not as transparent or well managed as government communication. So there are lots of requirements around government record keeping. But if 
WhatsApp is being used particularly on personal phones to talk about government business. There's no guarantee that that information will make it onto government systems. There's no guarantee that if, for example, a freedom of information request was sent, that the the right phone would be searched. We saw that with the Prime Minister's flat refurbishment, that um, some of his WhatsApps to the party donor who was helping with the refurbishment were only revealed by an electoral commission investigation and not under freedom of information. So there are lots of benefits to WhatsApp, but we also think because it is so embedded, it needs to be properly managed and properly um, properly used. John, do you agree or is that not really realistic? <laughs> uh, well, no, actually, it's slightly embarrassing, this. I do owe Tim uh, an apology because I, <laughs> That's I reacted to <laughs> What the... kind of apology? <laughs> well, I reacted on Twitter to... You really are sounding very embarrassed. <laughs> ...to a headline, um, a headline in the press which reported the IFG's um, paper, which he wrote. Uh, saying uh, ministers should be banned from using WhatsApp. Now, uh, so I said, of course, I don't agree with that. I think that's, mm. uh, that's absurd. But of course, that th- that isn't what uh, what Tim's uh, paper was saying at all. I mean, it was saying no. that, that ministers uh, will be using WhatsApp, and the the, the, quest- the question is how to how to regulate that. I mean, I do, uh, uh, but I do think that this is possibly. Uh, make, I mean, making quite a mountain out of out of a molehill <laughs> because I mean, as, as as Tim says, you know, people people will use WhatsApp and they were using. Um, I mean, they were texting each other before that. I mean, WhatsApp is just just a, a sort of elaborate form of texting and and actually a potentially more secure form. Um, and I think you know the important thing is obviously uh, the proper recording of decisions and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is something which is very important, uh, regardless of the medium used, and and, and 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 not just the recording of decisions, but the the transparency of those. I mean that you know if if, if there are records that need to be you know kept uh, of of how a decision was uh, made, that they are in some way accessible um, to the outside world. Yes, but I mean that's true of any form of communication, including face to face. Conversations, which um, you know, are only noted down if there's a civil servant present, usually, um, mm. and uh, you know that that applies whether it's a text or a phone call or or a WhatsApp or a or a Zoom meeting. I mean, all all you know, the, the question of record keeping is separate from the technology involved. I think yes, um, and it, you know, it arises obviously with things like the uh, the, the the animal rescue from uh, from. From Afghanistan, mm. uh, nobody knows who who took the decision or why the Foreign Office thought that the Prime Minister had taken a decision because uh, they haven't been able to trace the, uh, the the records. But that's nothing yeah. to do with WhatsApp. I mean, that could have happened, you know, in the nineteenth century, just because ministers didn't uh, didn't write everything down. Mm. But there is a lot of expectation of, of transparency now. Jill, what do you what do you make of this? Um, a real problem, or it was ever thus? There have always been informal chats. I mean, even before texting and things like that, it was always a nightmare as a private secretary to a minister when your minister went off to vote and was buttonholed or did a deal with maybe another cabinet minister and came back and you were still clear really what had been done. So the system's always had to sort of integrate, if you like, informal communication with the formalities of government. But I think, you know, clearly WhatsApp's become so ubiquitous and so widely used. And 
you know, and does seem to be substituting because, you know, you can have a group chat substituting for a lot of those things that would otherwise take place in sort of bigger settings that I do think is quite important that there are proper processes, as Tim's report says, about making sure that, you know, we, the public, on behalf uh, of whom ministers are making decisions, you know, are kept fully in the loop ultimately, uh, whether it's after 20-odd years with papers in the National Archive, about on what basis were those decisions made. We've already seen it. I mean, there's stuff in the papers today about uh, Randolph's contracts and Matt Hancock's exchanges with Owen Patterson, things like that. You th- think when you're involving public money, you know, government decisions, you actually need to make sure that there's a degree of formality around that decision-making. Um, I have to say, I thought in one way, the most interesting thing in Tim's report, not the most interesting, but a really interesting thing. Was <laughs> I don't the, mind you're creating a trap for yourself. Was <laughs> the response of departments to Tim's FOI request. So I was slightly yeah. taken aback because there used to be a process for dealing with what's sort of called a round robin a request where the cabinet officers say this request has gone to every department, you must all answer the same way. Uh, that system seems to have broken down rather wonderfully. And Tim managed to get completely different sorts of answers from departments claiming they couldn't possibly answer this to some who answered it for civil servants only and for others who just gave, <laughs> were perfectly prepared to include everybody in their response. And I thought that was a really interestingly revealing, uh, revealing snapshot into perhaps a sort of a different sort of system breakdown in government at the moment. Interesting. Tim, do you feel that government's given this a lot of thought? No, absolutely not. I think, and I just want to sort of agree with everything that, that John and Jill have said, you know, it, it's it's a new medium, but communication is has always been a, a thing in government, is how government works. Um, but that's our argument, is that, yes, that there needs to be a way of thinking about how to manage this new medium. And yes, rules and processes and, you know, ways of saving documents and so on and so forth matter. But it's also about common sense. It's about behaviours. It's about good examples. And I think that's where... Uh, John mentioned that you know this this relates to the the question we were discussing earlier about the the evacuation question, but it also relates to the kind of wider question around this government that we've talked about many times before about you know a, a recognition and a sort of sense that they will abide by what is expected of them or not, and and where that comes from, and WhatsApp is kind of one part of that, I think, um, and I think you know it's WhatsApp now, but in the twenty thirties it'll be a different piece of technology. Technology is always going to change, but it's about people's attitudes to it. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for wrapping it up that way. There's going to be an awful lot more on standards and that general question of government's attitude to rules, I suspect, in the coming months. But right now, that is it for another episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Tom Pope, Jill Rutter, Tim Durrant, and especially to John Rentor. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out IFG Live, our sister podcast. We've got some great recordings next week, including with the Chief of Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, and a discussion with Leveling Up Minister Neil O'Brien and the FT's very own Sebastian Payne. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, or major platforms. Do leave us a review too. I always ask. We always like it. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. You can find Tim's new paper and all our other work there as well. Why not WhatsApp your friends and tell them to check it out too? See you next week.